Hey, good morning. Glad you could join in. Why don't you open your Bible to Acts chapter 9 as we continue to make our way through this really, really rich book. Uh, It's a great transition book. It is the transition book, really, between the Gospels and the practical doctrinal instruction that is found in the epistles that follow. And so the book of Acts, as we've said earlier on, covers about a 30-year span, and predominantly it focuses on two apostles, Peter and Paul. We see Stephen, we see Philip, we see others. Uh, James uh, is prominent over the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. We see others that come to the fore as prominent figures. But by and large, the book of Acts focuses on the ministries of Peter and Paul. And uh, last time we were together, we saw the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, uh, ultimately from this antagonizer of the gospel, this persecutor of the church, to ultimately becoming uh, 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 born again, a follower of Christ, and he will begin what becomes a life, uh, the rest of his life, devoted uh, to being a, a a dynamic, explosive witness for the gospel, church planter, evangelist, uh, writer of a third of the New Testament, and so forth. So much there. Again, I, I know I'm kind of beating a dead horse here a little bit. That's I don't know if that's a fair analogy, but I, I'm kind of saying this a lot. That uh, the Book of Acts is so meaningful and rich in terms of our understanding of the first century church, but also in studying it, I think there's a tremendous encouragement for us in our day to consider the beautiful simplicity of their ministry, the simplicity of their reliance on the Holy Spirit. That's a lesson for us today with everything going on in the world around us. And as we inch, uh, take large strides, frankly, closer and closer to the return of Christ, I think a, a revisiting of that simplicity and that reliance on the Holy Spirit is something that would do us well. Uh, we would do well to observe, to learn from, to embrace, to adopt, to live out, much in the same way as they did. So that said, let's go ahead and jump into Acts chapter 9. Again, we looked at uh, Paul last time in his conversion. Well, now we switch gears here, starting in verse 32 of chapter 9, and uh, through the rest of chapter 9 into chapter 10, uh, through chapter 11, uh, into chapter 12, ultimately till about chapter 13, Peter takes the focus again. Chapters 13, we begin to see Saul and Barnabas together. Chapter 15, we see uh, the the council at Jerusalem about the gospel being open to the Gentiles, which we'll see in chapter 10. Uh, And then the rest of the book uh, pretty much has to do with the Apostle Paul. So that's kind of the layout of the rest of the book, more or less. But we're going to go ahead and look at chapter 9, starting in verse 32. Now, as Peter went uh, here and there uh, uh, among them all, He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Uh, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, Lydda is about 10 miles in the coast, inland from the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, we're going to see Peter going to Joppa soon after this, and that city is on the coast uh, of, of the Mediterranean. But here, as Peter is moving about, uh, he, was, uh, 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 he was there with Philip, and he and John, they laid hands uh, uh, and, and prayed for people and all this kind of thing with Philip. And now we see him just sort of moving freely about the, the area among different groups of believers in that. And he ultimately comes here again to this place called Lydda. And there's this guy there who has been bedridden for eight years, and Peter heals him. Uh, it's just a simple little 
element that just shows up in the book of Acts, and then we move on. Um, but it's just characteristic of the ministry of the apostles in the first century there. Uh, God was doing great works and signs and wonders among the apostles, and it gave opportunity for the power of God to be on display. And as we'll see in the next section that comes as well, uh, much like we have seen previously, oftentimes when God does something miraculous there, it is for the sake of the gospel. It is for the opportunity to share the good news. The miracle and the purpose of those miracles ultimately is for that. In this particular case, we see a miracle being done among believers, and it just as a, had to have served as a wonderful encouragement to them of God's presence in their lives. Sometimes people ask the question, you know, why is it that we see a lot of miracles in the first century in the book of Acts, but we don't see a lot of miracles today. Uh, you know, with deference to um, those who maybe are, um, you know, uh, well, I guess my foot's in it now. Yeah, you know, we talk about things like faith teachers and that kind of stuff. Um, has God ever healed in those circumstances? Maybe. I, I guess I don't know. I'm not aware of any actual legitimate provable healings from those uh, things. I know there's a lot of, you know, uh, building up the televangelist in those kinds of settings. But what about legitimate healings? Do we still see that kind of thing today? And how is it that there was so much of it in the first century, and then all of a sudden it seems to have stopped throughout most of the Middle Ages and, and even today? Do we see anything like that? Uh, I would argue, yes, we do see things like that today. There are legitimate ministries around the world, um, oftentimes in third world kinds of countries where they don't have much but their faith. Uh, ultimately to carry them. And we see God working and reports of that from legitimate ministries that, um, you know, uh, certainly there are illegitimate quote-unquote ministries out there as well, but from very legitimate ministries where they've seen God bring healings and those kinds of things, we do see it today. But why don't we see it maybe more in the West and that kind of a thing? Why is it that, you know, when we pray for people in our church services, maybe we don't see them healed all the time? There's a lot to be said about that. So let me just kind of maybe speak to it for a minute here. Um, there's a school of thought that miracles and healings kind of passed off the scene a little bit with the closing of the canon because we have uh, the first, you know, we have the canon complete now and so various gifts of the Holy Spirit like gifts of healing as well as tongues and prophecy and things like that would have faded off the scene. Uh, I don't hold that view. I don't think that that argument really holds water. I think that there's no clear point in scripture where it says that these things are going to cease prior to going to heaven. Uh, when that which is perfect has come, as Paul talks about in his writings to the Corinthians there, uh, that which is perfect is sometimes pointed to as speaking of the scripture. When the canon is complete, finished, therefore there will no longer be need for those things. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see how you get that from that passage. There doesn't seem to be any discussion about the scripture or the canon or anything like that there. And so I think it's kind of superimposed into the text uh, to sort of, you know, give some weight to that view. I don't think that's, a strictly speaking, a, a very solid biblical argument. Um, the Bible does not talk about an ending of these things prior to the lack of need for them anymore in heaven and that kind of thing. Um, I don't know that you can make the argument that there's any less need for this now than there was then. Um, the argument sometimes is also brought up, well, in the book of Acts, we sort of see healing sort of diminish and sort of not become a focal point through the rest of the book of Acts. That's kind of an argument from silence. It doesn't mean it wasn't happening, just we had plenty of recording early on. There's no reason to think that this didn't follow the apostles around as they continued their ministries. We don't see lots of examples of it after pretty soon uh, as we make our way through the book of Acts, it seems to kind of diminish. Again, that's an, an argument from silence. Um, when Paul plants the church in Corinth and he talks about the gifts and pretty much speaks about them as being in operation there in Corinth, there's really no 
indication that that's going to stop, you know. So, so let's get back to the question. Why don't we seem to see more of that today? Well, you know, there, there are a couple of things that we should consider when it comes to our understanding of God's working the best we can understand it. Um, on the one hand, uh, oftentimes there is a connection with faith, with healing and that kind of thing. Do we believe that God can heal in that circumstance? And even do we believe that he will heal in that circumstance? And I think sometimes we tend to, in our much more modern, sophisticated age, we tend to just sort of think that many of the illnesses, sicknesses that we might face can just sort of be dealt with medically and those kinds of things. Medical miracles are a real thing in themselves. The fact that we have technology to, to, to you know, treat people medically much more than they did then, uh, arguably, um, I think is, is no small miracle in itself. I think that's a wonderful truth of our, our day. However, what about, <clears throat> what about um, just availing ourselves to God working? I wonder if a lot of times it's because we, and, and, and don't, don't read this further than what I'm saying because it can be taken as a guilt trip kind of a thing. It's not what I'm saying, um, not what I'm going to say. But sometimes we just don't genuinely expect God to do those things today for whatever our personal reasons might be. Uh, we might feel like, you know, God just doesn't do that kind of stuff today and so we're not prone to believe. We might pray for someone to be made well, but we're not really believing that God is going to heal. We're just sort of hoping they get through it or whatever it might be, or they get the right doctor or something. When in fact, God may very well want to heal. You know, there are situations in the scripture where Jesus does few miracles in a place because there wasn't much faith there, uh, much belief there. And then he moves on. Uh, other times he talks about how your faith has made you well. Well, he's not talking about faith as some kind of a force that you tap into to heal yourself or be healed or something. That's not any, by any stretch, any kind of a definition of biblical faith. Biblical faith is built on the idea that God can and does, and should he want to, has no, no limitation to what he can do in terms of healing people and, and, and doing that. Uh, he's the great physician. He spoke uh, the universe into existence. Clearly, he can heal a broken bone. He can heal cancer. He can raise the dead. He can do those things. Jesus did those kinds of things uh, in the Gospels. We see that up to and including raising people from the dead, giving sight to the blind, people, someone who is blind from birth, something they'd never seen before. So there's no limit to what God can do in that regard. So why does God do that sometimes and not other times? Uh, doesn't God always want to heal people? Doesn't God want everybody healed? Well, the truth is no. Sometimes God chooses not to heal. And that may sound crazy to some people, but the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes God works through suffering. Uh, look at, uh, uh, not Acts, look at Paul um, as he writes to the Corinthians. He speaks about that uh, time when he was buffeted by a messenger of Satan and he prayed three times for the Lord to remove it from him. But Jesus himself responded and said that my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Uh, in other words, sometimes God uses that. Sometimes suffering is something God uses. Consider somebody like Job. Uh, Job, who is not aware at all of why God is allowing these things to happen in his life. But how many millions of people throughout the centuries reading Job have been helped by uh, just his own handling of his sufferings and that? Well, those things never would have been if not for Job going through those things or Paul going through those things or the various other people that we see just enduring their sufferings. That's just part of life sometimes. And sometimes God heals, sometimes he does. And it's not my place to presume upon him as to why he may in some cases and not in others. But to doubt that he can or that sometimes he will 
<clears throat> when he chooses to. He is sovereign to make that decision for himself. He doesn't, resp- you know, he's not subject to our faith. He does respond to our faith, but that's a willing choice on his part. Uh, with his overall knowledge of the things he's doing, ultimately for his glory, which is the motivation for all things uh, that we do. We want to see him glorified. Things we pray for, we want to see him glorified. But, you know, to say that God can't heal in any given situation is foolish. Of course he can. To say that God is going to in every situation is also foolish. God may decide not to because he may be more glorified by someone he doesn't heal. I'm often uh, prone to bring up an example. There's a, uh, a woman uh, who is a, a well-known Christian writer uh, about 100 years ago named Amy Carmichael. And uh, I think it was about that era. But Amy Carmichael is most known for her writing. Uh, she also is involved in serving orphans and things like this too. But generally speaking, we know her best from her writing. Well, Amy Carmichael did most, I think if not all, but I think at least most of her writing from a hospital bed over the last 20 years of her life when she was bedridden through illness. Well, you could argue, well, doesn't God want everybody healed? Well, if God wanted everybody healed, he would have healed uh, you know, Amy Carmichael, and we might never have had all those writings. Um, and that's true of a lot of people throughout history. You know, everybody dies of their last illness. Uh, Christians face persecution and are martyred for their faith. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, God rejoices over the, not the, the death of his saints in terms of how they die and their suffering per se, but in that they come home and that they can be a witness for him through their sufferings, even up to the end. And so I think to sort of have uh, a narrow, and I would even, without sounding, putting too fine a point on it, uh, an unbiblical view that God will always heal and that God always wants people healthy or added to that wealthy and that kind of a thing throughout their lives. Uh, it's a very narrow-minded and myopic view. It's a very self-centered view. It doesn't necessarily have the glory of God in mind as much as it has my own sense of how I think things should be in mind. Truth of the matter is, God is sovereign over the universe, and he will make choices that are ultimately excellent, good, and right, and will bring him glory. And ultimately, um, matter of fact, one last passage on that, Romans 8.28. It's a passage we probably quote a lot. Um, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We know this, right? The verse starts by saying, and this we know. Well, when we think of that passage, it's always important. And I, I always try to make sure that I, I never fail to bring this passage into its larger context. Uh, it's not just Romans 8.28. It's the passage preceding and following. The idea that all things work together for good, that good that is in view there is your ultimate good, my ultimate good. It's not just the momentary good that might come through an exciting uh, episode of God healing me in my life, but the overall good of him building in me Christian character, perseverance, faith, patience, all these kinds of things that he's working out. Sometimes he chooses to heal just because he does. And I've prayed for people and they've been healed. I don't have a gift of healing, but I, like others, have prayed for people. You've prayed for people that you know God may have miraculously healed. You know whether it's some seemingly small thing or whether it's something quite large. You know a tumor or something like that. Who knows? Um, but we've seen God work oftentimes, but not all the time. Sometimes God is working differently than you and I might expect, and so not knowing what his will might be in a given situation, we pray. We pray by faith. We anoint with oil. We lay hands on. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, uh, much, James would say. These things are absolutely true. 
does not mean that God works the same way all the time. As a matter of fact, when Jesus did heal, uh, he often healed in different ways. And I wonder sometimes if that's just so that we don't sort of cultivate this mindset that this is the formula for healing or this is the formula for how God works. Again, that's a very narrow and uh, uh, it's a very narrow view, but a much more, uh, I don't want to say advanced, but a much more mature view uh, is the recognition of God's sovereignty, never doubting for a moment. You know, my friend and I talk about this quite often, and um, and sometimes we pray like we're giving God an out. God, if it's your will, then we just pray you would ever. And, and for some, that means that I'm not really expecting God to work, but I just want to say it because he might, but I'm not really feeling like he's going to, and so I sort of give him an out. God doesn't need an out. I think when we when we pray that way, we ought not be doubting in faith. We just should simply be acknowledging God's sovereignty. God, you are fully capable. You might be, matter of fact, you might be watching right now and you might be asking God to heal you. I don't know if he's going to. But God, if you see this person who is suffering right now with some kind of a physical or mental, emotional malady of some kind that has just been either physically keeping them down or oppressing them, you might well want to deliver that person from that right now. You might want to restore that physical health to that person. I don't know if you do, but your word says that we can pray and ask by faith. And so we're going to do that right now. God, heal that person and just restore them fully uh, and be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think there's any conflict between, um, between having faith and trusting God's sovereignty. After all, what's our faith in if not the God who is sovereign? So, boy, that was a lot further than I initially thought about going, actually, on that passage. So let me go ahead and, and just read uh, verse 36, and we'll finish up the passage. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, a believer. This is a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, or which means gazelle. Um, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Joppa's on the coast of the Mediterranean, and Lydda is about 10 miles inland from there. So they're about 10 miles apart, not terribly far. Might be a little less than 10 miles, just using your Bible map and the scale there. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come with us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Jesus put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one, uh, with one named Simon, who was a tanner. And so again, we see God working, the Holy Spirit working through Peter in this moment as he goes in to someone who's not just ill, she's actually died. She's a beloved saint, somebody who is full of good works, is uh, just a full expression of her faith in Christ. Her love for others was demonstrated. She made these tapestries and all these things, and they were mourning her. And they thought, you know, maybe God's going to work. And they send for Peter when they hear he's not too far away. He comes in. He sees all this stuff. He sees, you know, examples of her faith and her charity and love for others and everything. He puts the group out of the room. And in other words, he doesn't make a show of this. He simply gets alone with the Lord and with this body of this deceased beloved sister, and he prays for her. 
and she rises from the dead. She's brought back to life. He, pre, he looks in and looking at the body. She's gone. She's in the presence of the Lord. But God gives another opportunity for her to come back and continue to be a blessing to those around. Peter prays, she's healed. She ultimately comes back to life. And there's great rejoicing among the believers there. And also, as we mentioned earlier, it becomes a sign for those outside there in Joppa. They hear about what happened, and many come to faith in the Lord. And so that's pretty amazing. Now, what often is kind of just quickly breezed through here is at the very end of this passage, right before we get to chapter 10, which is another much like the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, uh, chapter 10, where the gospel is open to the Gentiles, is another gigantic moment in the church's history. Well, the passage that kind of ends chapter 9 and moves into chapter 10, remember the chapter markers were not there when the book of Acts was written. It's just a continuing story. And the verse that sort of is the connector between what Peter just did and what's about to happen is this last verse that Simon stays in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a guy named Simon, a tanner. A tanner is somebody who worked with leather, in other words, with dead animals, which meant he was ceremonially unclean oftentimes. It took, uh, he'd have to not work for a period of time in order to cleanse and purify and do the things necessary to participate in the various practices of the Jewish faith in that. And so Peter is staying with him which is sort of an unkosher thing to do, if I can sort of just be a little flippant about it. Um, You know, to stay in that place means he's coming in contact, potentially, with dead animals and things like this. That's not an insignificant thing, considering the paradigm shift in his own thinking and awareness of what God is doing that takes place in the next chapter. And we'll leave it there for today. And when we come back to the study in Acts, we'll look at chapter 10. And we'll see how the gospel begins to open to the Gentiles in this wonderful situation that the Holy Spirit unfolds. So, Father, we thank you so much for your grace and goodness and giving us the word of God, giving us this insight into all that took place here. Uh, So many of the things, I should say, that took place there in the first century with these believers. We thank you that the Holy Spirit was so powerfully at work through these folks. And we would ask the same today. Father, if there's Anything on our parts that sort of keeps us from trusting or uh, has us doubting that you would want to work in the same way today, if in fact you might, then help those uh, doubts and uh, that particular perspective that we have to sort of be set aside. And just, Lord, we want to avail ourselves to you fully. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in our day, uh, especially as the world is growing harder and harder and colder and colder as we move closer to the day when you wrap things up. We know that in the book of Revelation, you often speak of the work that will take place even after the church is gone. We know that you're always seeking those who will turn, whether it's through these 144,000 evangelists, whether it's through the angel uh, soaring through the heavens declaring the gospel. We know your desires for people to be saved. Help us to desire it as deeply. And we just pray that as we do, that, Father, you might even use us in powerful ways, not that we might build ourselves up or be seen as some kind of a Christian superstar, but just simply so that we might be instruments in your hand to bring the good news and to bring it with word and with power. Father, we thank you and praise you that you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and that nothing about you changes. You don't change your character. Your power is not diminished. Father, we don't presume to know your will in every circumstance. And so we just pray that as we make our way through walking by faith, that you would just be, uh, just that you would just choose us to do the work you want to do. 
uh, in, in the days in which we live. And again, whether it be through word or power or both. So we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask you, Lord, to continue to bless our times in your word. Let it be fruitful and let it be something that uh, just engages us and causes us to know you better. So thank you, Father. We just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks again for joining. And uh, if you have comments or anything like that, you can leave them here on our YouTube channel in the comments section. You can also go to my website at parsonspad.com where you can also watch these videos and comment or email me as well at brian at parsonspad.com. You can also subscribe to the audio version of this podcast if you'd rather just listen to it on your favorite podcast outlet. Um, You can also learn about our church, Calvary Chapel Franklin, at the website that bears that same name, calvarychapelfranklin.com. And you can learn about our service times. You can learn about our beliefs and our practices and those kinds of things. You can watch our Sunday morning services. And of course, if you're anywhere around the area in Middle Tennessee and you want to stop by and pay us a visit on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, we'd love to have you and love to meet you. So thanks uh, for watching again, and we'll look forward to catching up with you next time. And the Lord be with you, watch over you, and make his face to shine upon you until we do.